Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let's begin by having prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning once again with our hearts full of joy of what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, for rescuing us from certain death in the lake of fire through his death on the cross for our sins. And we thank you, Father, that you raised him from the dead on the third day. And so that whoever simply hears this good news, that their sins have been dealt with at the cross, and that you've raised your son from the dead, just believes it has eternal life. Father, today we ask also that we, we pray for all those who are sick, especially we're praying this morning for the recovery of Steve and Marilyn from their illness. We pray also, Father, for any of the folks, and we know that your word tells us that whoever desires to live this Christian life will face persecution and adversity. And we know that people are facing it right now, and we just, we just pray to you to provide what they need, especially spiritually at this time. We also ask today, Father, that you would provide what we need as we're here, as we, were, as we are participating together in the singing, in the learning of the word, fellowshipping with one another. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everyone. All right, as we begin today, just another opportunity to uh, think about the missionary activity around the world that each and every church ought to be a part of. We have several ministries that we do support, and uh, about every six months we'll, we'll start over again. I think we have six now. This month we're featuring Grace Bible Church Pakistan, gbcpakistan.org. Here's a picture of the family. A few, they have a very large congregation there in Afwala, Pakistan. Once again this year, as they have been for the last 10 years, um, they're going to sponsor Christmas care packages for their young people. They set a goal this year of $12,000 for that. They do break it into two groups. They have a Grace Academy. These are the older children. And they put together a student package for them, and their cost $15 each. And then they have the younger kids, and those are primarily out in the villages, and they are going to put together about 1,200 of these village packages, and they're at $7 each, and they do have travel expense on top of that. I say all that because every year we do help, and this year will be no exception. And if you'd like to be a part of that, actually, um, actually, we don't have the slides up. <laughs> But that's okay. Um, you can, uh, I, think, I think the best thing to do is actually to make, the, make the check out to Lighthouse Bible Church and then put GBC Pakistan or Christmas um, gifts, however you, you know, want to indicate that it's for the Christmas care packages on the memo side of that. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I just did an audible because you know, say make checks out to GBC Pakistan. I'm, I'm changing that. You can all deal with that? Make them out to Lighthouse Bible Church and then put in the memo for the Christmas care packages. All right. <laughs> All right. No politics. Come on. Come on, man. It's, a, it's a less than a month before the election. I've been so good. My, my strategy is to make every Republican think I'm a Democrat and every Democrat think I'm a Republican. If I've done that, then I've succeeded behind the pulpit because there's no place for actually politics behind the pulpit. All right. So, again, please... Uh, be generous. Deadline of that is December 1st. And uh, again, I, I know every year we, we are, you are very generous, and I know that you will do what you can this year as well. All right. It's, it's a tremendous ministry. It is a privilege to be a part of it and support it. Let me just say that. All right, let's get to the message today. And it's, uh, the title comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, and the title is, Everything Created by God is Good. Everything created by God is good. Now we're going to begin today as we um, look now at the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy. We're going to start at verse 1. We'll turn the corner from chapter 3 to chapter 4. We're going to just briefly remember what we ended on in chapter 3. And then we're going to look at how things change immediately when we get to chapter 4. But let's read the passage together. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, 
and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. As we turn from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we're going from the mountaintop where we ended last week right back to the battlefield. Remember last week we looked at the glories of Jesus Christ in, that, in, in verse 16, in that hymn. And it was, it was showing us the whole plan of God's salvation through his perfect son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Ended up with him being, being uh, raised from the dead, taken into, the, assumed into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the mountaintop. Today we return to the battlefield. Remember at the very beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul gave Timothy a charge. And he said, I want you to fight the good fight. And that good fight had to do with battling false teaching on behalf of the congregation. In chapter 4, Paul gets right back into that business. So, what does that tell us? It tells us that whenever we have great truth... Mark it down, the error is going to try to force its way in. Or in other words, wherever truth flourishes, and you can't get more glorious truth than the glories of Jesus Christ, wherever truth flourishes, error will rear its ugly head. There is a force, a person, opposing all the things of God. God does things in a gracious, glorious way, and his enemy, enemies try everything they can to break that down. So when you, for example, when you have a, a, a church that's flourishing and preaching God's word, and when I use that word church, I just don't mean a local assembly. I mean the wider picture of, of the churches. And when that's happening, then, then Satan's uh, minions, which, which includes, as we'll see today, both demons and humans, unfortunately, are going to resist that, try to break that down. That's what we're seeing as we go from the mountaintop of Jesus Christ in glory down to the battlefield where once again Timothy realizes that he's facing this, this, these opponents that are trying to destroy the churches in Ephesus. So that's the setting for today. And, you know, uh, on the one hand, we have the Spirit prophesying about the last days. Look at chapter, let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 4 where Paul is now returning to the, the, the the nitty-gritty and the warfare equipping Timothy to deal with false teachers in Ephesus. Verse 1 again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Notice that Paul goes out of his way to say, what I'm about to tell you, this prophetic word, comes directly from the Holy Spirit. And he very explicitly says, as if, as if he was emphasizing it. He wants to say that these words came from the Holy Spirit, so pay attention. But the Spirit explicitly says, it's from the Holy Spirit, it's direct and it's clear. And he says, in later times. Very often prophecy, and this is one by the way, notice he says, in, the later, in later times, in the future, some will fall away from the faith. He's talking about a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. But many times, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, prophecies serve, a, do, serve two different purposes, related. Ultimately, it's, it's to let God's people know about something that's going to occur in the future. You think about the great prophecy of Daniel, for example, when he told the Israelites who, who were in exile in Babylon that there would come a day when the walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and then 490 years after that, Messiah would come. 490 years after where he's prophesying. It's about the future. But it also came right back to the people in Babylon to give them hope that, that God hasn't canceled out his promises to the, to the nation of Israel. The Messiah will come. So it's two twofold purpose. That's true here. Not only is this going to talk about something that's occurring in the future, in the last later time, some will fall away, but it also addresses the situation at hand. The situation that Timothy is facing right then when Paul is writing this letter to him. So again, on the one hand, the Spirit is prophesying about the future. He calls it the later, later times, but also, as we're going to see in 2 Timothy, we'll go there in a minute, it's also called the last days. 
the last days. But at the same time, in fact, let's go there now. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Right. On the one hand, the Spirit's prophesying about the future later times, last days. He's going he's to say something really similar in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's take a look at that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. As always, we will go back to 1 Timothy 4 in a minute. I want you to see, uh, once again, we've seen this already a lot in 1 Timothy, that there's lots of connections between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And also you bring in Titus. Because all three of those were letters that Paul wrote to his deputies, as it were, the ones who would be coming in the next generation and supporting and building churches. And he had them, he was, set, he was giving them everything that he could think of to make them be successful. So there's a lot of connections, similarities between each of these letters. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, there it is, difficult times will come. This is another prophecy, right? For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Now, he's talking about the last days, which would be the days just before the church's rapture. All right? Now, but at the same time, you know, you take a look at this, and the fact is that men have been lovers of self all the way through. It just gets worse. You see, that's what the church's age is, a, is an age where there are trends that come to a, to a climax right before Christ comes in the rapture. Lovers of money. I mean, if you look, if you look back to the Middle Ages, or if you, you know, the church in the Middle Ages was all about money, for example. This is nothing new, but it gets more and more intense as time goes by and so forth. So the point there is that while there is this future event that, that, that Timothy, uh, that Paul is looking towards, he's also bringing it back and saying there's, there's, there's elements of this now. And while Timothy may or may not, now from the perspective of Paul, Timothy may or may not live to see the rapture. We know now he didn't. But at the same time, he's going to deal with these things that are already surfacing and will come to their full, ugly fruition at the end. All right, so, so let's look at the fact that, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1. And we'll pick up where we just left off. But I wanted you to see 2 Timothy 3, because it too talks about that future time period. All right. 1 Timothy 4, 1 again. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will, that's future now, fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And Paul is going to go on with Timothy to explain what he's to do about it. Now, if he were just talking about an event in the future, he wouldn't need to, right? He might say, well, this is interesting. I want you to know about the future, Timothy, but don't worry about it. Well, he had to worry about it because not only was it a future event when it's going to be all out, but it's already starting. It already started in Timothy's time. What does that tell us? It's in our time. Whether or not we're in the generation where the rapture occurs, all right, a lot of people think we are, and I won't argue, no. I, I tell you, you're probably tired of hearing me say this, but whenever somebody says, hey, you know, you're into the Word of God, can you tell me when the rapture is going to occur? I look them straight in the eye and I said, tonight. And then they're like, what? Because <laughs> it could, right? That's the idea of the rapture. It could happen at any time. So it could have happened during Timothy's life. We know now it didn't. But in fact, he's also talking about things that Timothy will be encountering and, as a matter of fact, was encountering. In, in the first century, in the year 61, 62 AD, he was already facing this. You know, John will, will say the same thing. We'll see the letter of John this morning, First John. He'll say the same thing. He's saying that the spirit of Antichrist is already out there. That's in the first century. And it's certainly over time that's been building up, you know, as, as, God's, as God builds his church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, getting fuller and fuller, then you, ba- you can guarantee that the enemies are ramping up their opposition to that. All right. So, so what's the point? The point is that this present apostasy that Paul was, was warning Timothy about in the first century and that we face today, it'll just be full in the last days. It'll be obvious. It'll be overwhelming in the last days. But it's here now. All right, I hope you get that point. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, 
paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. If somebody's falling away from the faith, in other words, they're turning away from it, they're running away from it, they're turning in the other direction, what does that mean? It means they were once in the faith. They were once believers. They're always going to be believers, but believers who held close to God's word. And then, so the time, some things happened, and they moved away. They fell away. All right. So the sum here, notice it says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, sum. That's really indefinite. It doesn't tell us the sum, but in context, we know that there's two groups of sum here. One is members of the congregation that are in error, that have fallen away from the faith. Okay? But number two, and we're getting closer to the, the, the reason why, is the false teachers. They bear the brunt of the responsibility here, as we're going to see in a minute. So that some who falls away from the faith, actually what happens is that the, the, the leaders, the ones that they're listening to, the teachers that they're following, had to fall away first. And then as they follow their lies, then they start falling away after. That's how this works. But both of them, he's saying, it'll be both leaders and members of the congregation will fall away from the faith. Now the faith here means the entire Christian life. You know, Paul's been emphasizing this. He's saying, look, you can't divorce the teaching, the doctrine, what you believe, from what you do, from your behavior. Remember, we saw that in the, in the context of the leaders. He was saying, listen, I'm going to tell you about the leadership qualities, the character, the behavior. Why? Because we can't see what's in their heart, but we can see their behavior. And that's how we have to, we have to use that in order to evaluate men as to whether they're suitable for leadership. What is that saying? It is saying that what a person has in his heart will eventually come out in his behavior. And so he's saying it again the same way here. He's pointing to the fact that when I say fall away from the faith, I don't just mean, you know, turn the other way on a few doctrines, right? Which, but that's the start of it. But it's also meaning you can't do that and not also turn away from the Christian life. It's all, this, it's all part of it. It's not just, don't kid yourself that you can think, well, you know, they used to believe in the uh, unlimited atonement, and now they think that God picks who can be saved. But other than that, they're really good Christians. They can't be. <laughs> because if they're moving away from the truth, mark it down, they're moving away from the life. That will have implications. Very practically, if you don't think that Jesus died on the cross for everybody, then that's going to give you a lot less motivation to preach the gospel, isn't it? Because you can, you, can, you can skirt out of it by saying, oh, you know, I could clearly, God's telling me that they're not going to be saved. For example, right? If you believe, on the other hand, let's say you believe that, you know what? Faith is, faith is fine, but you have to repent of your sins first. And then after you, if you say you believe, then we better see it in your life. Otherwise, you really haven't believed. If you start going in that direction, mark it down. It's going to affect your behavior. It's going to affect your relationship. It's going to affect your attitude towards yourself and your relationship with others. You can't separate what you believe from how you act. Okay, so that life is included when he says the faith. Teaching and behavior. Now the Spirit, notice, he says in no uncertain terms. The word in the Greek is apostasy. When we say apostasy, that's what we mean. We mean turning away from the authentic faith of the Bible. That's what apostasy is, all right? And as we're going to see today, that apostasy isn't always what you think it looks like. A lot of people think that it only has to do with immorality. It only has to do with, um, with turning away. But it also has to do with what we're going to see today is legalism. People don't think of that. You know, like, we're, we're wired as human beings somehow to think that people who, like, live a holy life are more spiritual than those, quote, a holy life. You know, I, I remember a person talking about, this was not, this was a Catholic, and he was talking about um, one of the uh, people on TV that were evangelistic uh, preachers, and he said, man, that guy is so impressive. I heard that, you know what, he kept his old car for 15 years, and he, he had lots of money, but he lived in a shack, and he's going on and on, what, describing the conventional worldly wisdom about what a holy person looks like. But it's not true. All right, there's nothing, that, that is not, that's legalistic. If you say, well, a man who never drinks, who never smokes, you know, always looks good, dressed up well, and uh, drives an old car, and blah, 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 blah. You know, that's my vision of holiness. That's the world. That's not how God sees it. 
So in any event, legalism is part of the apostasy as well. Now, what it, where does it come from? Well, the Spirit, as he says right here, he says um, that they are paying attention, they are falling away based on the fact that they're paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. He's saying apostasy has its roots, its origins in demon influence. Now, that's, that's something that we don't like to face. Lies that are inspired by demons. You know, we like to think about the person. We go after the person. Or we discover in a lie. We discover his teaching, false teaching. And that's fine. That's how we have to deal with it directly. But never forget that behind it are the, are the demonic influence, demons, who are teeing these things up so that, so that false teachers will fall for it and then they will teach their congregations. The source isn't the man, it's the, demon, it's the demons. All right. Don't get all goofy on me now. Don't be looking around now and say, where are they? Are they in the speakers? Are they over there? Nobody ever goes in the last row over there. Maybe they're hanging. They're going to poke their head up after service and tor- torment the pastor. You know, That's not it. All right. They don't work that way. All right. But, but, but Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle isn't against people. It's against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. All right. And the way that they go about their business is by fostering lies. Which is why our armor that the Lord tells us to put on has to do with truth, has to do with the gospel, has to do with, with the faith and believing the things that are in God's word. So don't, the point here, though, is do not kid yourself. Demons are real. It's not just a colorful medieval description. All right? He wasn't, a lot of people want to kind of spiritualize this away or say this is just a metaphor. Not true. All right? God has enemies, they're spiritual in nature, they're, they're people in that sense, not humans, but they're, they're, they're people, they're, they're, they, they are able to think and make decisions and spread lies, they're, they're of the demonic level, they're angelic, but they're fallen angels, they're real. You know, it's, again, it's funny, like, and this is human nature, but we have no problem believing, well, some of us not, believing that we have a guardian angel, right? But do we also believe that we have a guardian demon? Meaning that there's those around that are watching us and are trying to find ways to bring us away from the faith? Well, the Bible says yes. Now, I'm not saying there's one assigned to you, don't get me wrong. But they're just as real as the, as the angels, the elect angels. Now, what are they all about? Well, we see right here. They're full of deceit. Right? Jesus said this about Satan. He's been a liar from the beginning. And so are the Satan's deputies. They're, all they do is lie. They're deceitful. They're actively promoting false teachings. You wonder why. People say, I hear this all the time. You know, there's certain things we're dealing with now. um, False teachings that are out there. And people say, how could they possibly fall for that? Those, the the individual, I remember when they were totally doctrinal. They had the gospel right. Now they have it wrong. How could that possibly happen? First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. They started paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, they had help. There are these beings that are actively working to get lies behind pulpits, to get lies in the hearts of the people of the congregation. Now don't get scared, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God knew all about it, and he's given us every resource and more that we need to overcome all of that. So don't, don't, don't dwell on that in the sense of being full of fear. But just be aware of it. Be aware of that it's real, that you're not imagining it. That there are actually forces... Uh, beings out there that are trying to resist everything that God's trying to do in your life. So don't be surprised. Don't freak out. But take the correct action that God says. Put on that full armor of God. But they do. They want to destroy congregations. People wonder, you know, why is it, man, that church was doing so well. Now look at it. It's falling apart. You know, it must have had bad leadership. Absolutely. But what happened first was that that they became under the influence of this false teaching which was sponsored by demons. False teaching today at 10 o'clock is brought to you by 18 demons. You know, that kind of thing. Not, I mean, it's not that obvious, but it's true. And the thing is, they're seductive. When we think about demons, I don't know about you, but I think about like lots of smoke and lots of like creepy, crawly-looking, you know. Not at all. They're attractive. They're attractive, and so are their agents. That's why people fall for it. 
You know, if a demon came this morning and was just like, you know, like, like, I'll be gross for a minute, like, like vomiting uh, pea soup and, you know, all the crazy ideas that people have, would you listen to him? No. But would you listen to somebody who's attractive and well-spoken? Yeah, maybe I would. Especially if everybody else is fawning all over him. I think I'd join the club. So they're attractive. Their agents are, and so are their lies. You know, it, it's, isn't it great to, you, you know, that, to say, look, you know, you can live your best life now. All people are good, you know. Don't you, it's a party that says, oh, that's attractive. I wish I could believe that. Nobody's going to the lake of fire. Everybody's ultimately going to be saved, right? That's the kind of thing where it sounds good, but it's a lie. And so that's how they operate. And here's the thing. People don't just start to believe the lies. You know what happens? They become dedicated to them. When it says paying attention, it means dedicated to, committed to. They become sponsors of this. They promote it. They recruit. One of the things that never ceases to amaze me is that you have, you have, you have churches and pastors, and I'm included in this, hopefully, um, that are teaching the truth. But then you look at the, the people that are teaching lies. They're much more active about it. They're in your face about it. They want to recruit you. They're working hard. Well, that's the deal. Why? Because they're committed to it. And don't, 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 don't think that this isn't something that they are motivated to fight for and recruit people into and promote. Because they do. Look at verse 2 now. By means of, what is that saying? It's saying the demons are there. They got these false teachings. But then they have a strategy. All right, they have a how. How are they going to get this done? Again, if they just appeared themselves, people would run away. But what if we got human beings to be our agents, right? By means of the hypocrisy of liars. We're going to see in a minute. What's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is somebody who puts something on the outside to make you fall for it, but on the inside is the opposite. That's the strategy. Counterfeit. Falsehood. Wolf in sheep's clothing. All right? hypocrisy of liars. In other words, they're liars, but they want you to believe, you know what, I am, I am so well-versed, I've gotten these messages from the Holy Spirit now, now Paul did, but I'm talking about the false teachers. You know, there's, there's people out here today that'll tell you, you know what, I had a vision the other night, and it's, it's a special thing, and I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm going to write a book about it, and it's going to be a bestseller, and they are, by the way. I mentioned last week, I'm very careful about what's in Christian bookstores today. Why? Well, because they're, they're, how do they sell books? Are they going to sell books by saying that this is the same thing that's been taught for 500 years? No. They may sell some to like Christians who are into the Word of God. But how do you get big sales? This is something new. It's never been known before. This person had a vision. This person went to heaven and came back and told us about it. This person gets, has a conversation with Jesus every morning and writes it in your diary. Those are the things that sell big, right? Now, thank God, the biggest selling book of all time, of course, is the Bible. But the point is, is we have to be on the lookout for the fact that not only do the demons sponsor this, but they have, as it were, Human allies. They have human allies. They actually do the, the dirty work. They're the ones who do the bidding of the demons. They, they stay hidden. They are hidden. They're spirits. They're in the heavenly places. And then they recruit people, men. Now, these men belong to the world. They're not belonging to the church, but they get into churches. What they're trying to do, and they work hard. This is another thing. Be very careful when a man is working really hard to say, I want to be accepted as a leader. I've seen that happen many times. Somebody comes on the scene and they're full of vim and vigor. And they're telling you about all the great things that they're planning to do. And they want to, they said, can you give me a leadership position? And the answer is, and should be, not on your life. For, for one thing, we're supposed to make sure somebody's been tested for us. That's wisdom. Because these people that, are, that, have, been, that have been influenced by demons are going to try, work hard to be accepted as leaders. How do they do that? They make themselves look attractive. And those who are unsuspecting or, or, or new believers or don't have discernment will fall for it. Please look at 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see what, how John helps us understand the reality here. Demons have human allies. They're sometimes called false teachers. False apostles. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit. 1 John 4.1 Do not fall for every wind of new teaching. Do not believe every spirit. But what? Test the spirits. That's what we're called to do. How do you test the spirits? Really simple. You find out whether what they say lines up with the Word of God. Not what you would like to believe, right? But the Word of God. That's how you test the spirits. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about one case of that. There were people who were around saying that Jesus Christ was really you know, an angel. He wasn't really human. That was one of the lies that was gets promoted. Now, all you got to do is check the Word of God out, and you can see by the Scriptures that he's, he's undiminished deity, perfect humanity, and one person forever. If you know that, you won't fall for the lie. That's how you test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. What is that saying? Some spirits are not of God. People, people say, you know what? That one there, I, he's, he's performing miracles. What miracles have you performed, Pastor? Right? They'll say, I mean, I don't get that too much. But people think that way. You know, they're very attracted. The, one, you know, the people that are on television and say they get miracles and all this stuff and hundreds of thousands of people show up at their rallies. Test the spirits. You know, there are spirits out there who can assist false teachers and make them look very attractive. But, but our weapon, you know, is the word of God. If we have this, the sword of the spirit, we're not going to fall for it. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because notice this, first century AD, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. That was true in the first century. It's triply true today. There are many, 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 many false prophets today that are out there. Many of them. Some of them, many of them are using the name of Jesus. We see that happening in so many. If you think about the multiplication of, quote, religions in our country and around the world, very many of them will use the name Jesus. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the church with the Latter-day Saints, for example. The Mormons use the name of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses use the name of Jesus. Cults do. Sometimes the cult leader says he is Jesus, but in any event, they're using Christ. There are lots and lots and lots of false prophets Now that seems overwhelming until you realize that that's always the case. If you want to understand the difference between God's ways and Satan's ways, it's real simple. God's ways are straightforward. There's one truth. The Bible hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's one. It's simple. If you want to know how, how Satan works, he comes up with all kinds of counterfeits. With the idea that, you know what, one of these will stick to one person. They'll, they'll really be attracted to this counterfeit Christianity. And there's lots of them. Why? Because he's, he's trying to just fool people. That's a good way to tell. What's the one that hasn't changed? What's the one that, that, that is straight across with God's word? That's the one. Not the ones that are multiplying and they're all different ideas and theories and designer religions and all of that. Well, Paul knew this, of course, and he, it wasn't just in 1 Timothy that he warns um, the church in Ephesus. Please turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, having just about wrapped up his third missionary journey. And he's coming to, he's coming to Jerusalem, but he's going by way of ship, and he stops off at a place called Miletus, which is really close to Ephesus. And there he calls down the, the pastors, the elders in Ephesus. He wants to have one more time to, to be with them. And notice what he says. Notice the warning. Notice the prophecy. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, I know. This is, the, this is a prophecy. He says, I know after my departure, savage wolves in sheep's clothing will come in among you. Among you. Not sparing the flock. Elders. They're charged with shepherding the church. He's saying that there will be these savage wolves who will be right in there with you. Leadership. Teaching. Not sparing the flock. They're going to try to destroy the church. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Notice, it's not out there in the world. It's right in there among the leadership among those who are purporting to be leaders, teachers, and so forth. From among your own selves, men will arise, 
How do you know who they are? Speaking perverse things. Jesus said, by their, by their fruits you will know them. And a lot of people want to think that that's you're supposed to evaluate everybody's fruit. And it's supposed to be certain works and deeds. Well, guess where it starts? It's talking about false teachers. If you check what Jesus Christ in context was dealing with when he said that by your fruits you will know them. Them was false teachers. The Pharisees and so forth. And it's the same thing here. He's saying, check out what they say. Speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. To get them to fall away from authentic teaching into lies. Therefore, what's the charge? Just like Timothy. Be on the alert. That's a charge to every legitimate elder and pastor in every generation of the church. Don't, don't, keep, don't turn your eyes away from what's happening with your flock. Don't automatically assume that somebody comes in and has all the right things to say is really a Christian or really has the best interest of church at heart. I've seen so many times people like that and you think at first, wow, this, this is great. This person's got a lot of energy. This person seems really you know, authentic and blah, blah, blah. And then the next month, they're doing something to try to break up the church. I've seen that happen more than once, actually. I don't say anything about it, but it happens. All right. What's this telling us about this strategy of the demons? They always try to work an inside job. You know, they always want their informant, their spy. All right. They, they get in there and they try to break things up. They spy on our love feasts. That's one way that, that, is, that is put in the Bible. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, hypocrites, deceivers. Verse 2. Go back now, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Timothy 4, 2. Here are the agents of the demons, the human agents. 1 Timothy 4, 2. By means of, demons get their lives out there in the church by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, Hypocrisy. What does it mean? Hypocrisy, very simply, especially in this context, means they were not who they claimed to be. It's that simple. Don't take anybody's, don't take especially leaders' word for it that they're that they're actually Christian leaders that have been designated by the Lord to do something. Don't take their word for it. Is that why? Because they may not be who they claim to be. That's hypocrisy, and they know what they're doing. Okay, they know they're not who they claim to be. And they're going to work hard to fool you, right? And so that don't, don't go on appearance, vocabulary, um, degrees, you know, any of those things. No, why? Because those are all things. You have to ask the question, is what I'm basing my decision to follow this person, is it based on things that people in the world would define as a good leader only? Is, is it based on the fact that that can unbelievers do the, the things that I'm pointing to that say this is the guy for me? That's the test. And, and of course, how do you know that what are the things that an unbelieving leader can't do? Well, discern the word of God, preach the word of God, you know, accurately according to the scriptures. That ought to be it. The pillar and support of the truth. That's who we are. Okay. The teaching was not what it claimed to be. They said it was new revelation from God. It was not anything like that. It was not divine revelation at all. We just saw what it is. It's the opposite revelation from demons. To see this really clearly, I'd like you now hold your place in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and please travel back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 13. This whole idea of hypocrisy. Disguising. Make everybody think there's somebody and they're not that person, there's somebody else. The word in the Greek, hypocrites, was originally used in drama where you had an actor and he was a person, but he was trying to portray himself as somebody else. Like there may be an actor that's portraying himself as, uh, as Odysseus, you know, whatever, you know, the Odyssey, right? And he, he didn't look anything like him, but he put a mask in front of him. And that's what he used. You know, you see these masks of the smiley face and the frown face. That's because they used to use that. But that's a great picture. Somebody has a mask on. And I'm not talking about, so I'm looking at people have their masks on. I'm not talking about you guys, 
right? Because of the COVID or anything, right? They're trying to say, make you think there's somebody who they're not. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men, the false teachers, the agents of, of demons, such men are false apostles. Well, they're apostles, but they're false. What does that mean? They want you to think they're an apostle, even though they're not. Deceitful workers. They want you to think that, they have, that, they're, that they're true and pure, but they're just deceiving you. Disguising, that's the key. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself. How, what does he disguise himself as? An angel of light. Right? Pure. Pure as the driven snow. An angel of light. Somebody very impressive. Somebody that you say, this one has to be a, a teacher from God. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, remember, the ones who do his bidding, false teachers, false apostles, it's not surprising that the servants of Satan and the demons also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They'll exaggerate their so-called righteousness. But they'll do it in a way, the only way they understand, okay, which is religion and legalism, right? They won't get at the heart of it, right? What's the heart of, of real righteousness? Well, it's God's heartbeat. It's grace. It's humility. It's sacrificial. It's loving others. That's not how they'll do it. They'll try to project things like legalism. You know, I, I, I fast three times a week. I pay tithes on all I earn. I don't eat meat and all that kind of stuff. That's, how the, that's, that's what it means that they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Whose end will be according to their deeds? God's not fooled. He's not mocked. Now, these people, and, and Paul is dealing with them, First Timothy, knew that they were lying. You know, sometimes people want to say, well, you know, those poor false teachers, they're just being, they don't really know what they're saying, but well, they do. <laughs> don't kid yourself. They knew they were lying, but they didn't care. That's the, that's the situation. Why didn't they care? Well, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 2, we'll see why they didn't care. 1 Timothy 4, 2, again. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, notice what comes next. Seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The reason they don't care is because their consciences had been seared. They've been to- they're now totally insensitive to any issues of right and wrong. They didn't care. They just, I know it's a lie, I don't care. I don't get, you know, right and wrong doesn't mean anything to me anymore. As a matter of fact, as we're seeing today in our world, they're flipped right so often. We see people call good evil and evil good. At that point, you've had it because you'll say anything because you have no conscience anymore. What's the conscience? We've seen this recently. The conscience is an organ of decision. It's there to assist men and women to make good decisions. That's a conscience that's functioning. Basically, it takes facts from God's word, as Christians now, facts from God's word, standards of God's word, and at any time that there's a decision to be made by a person, as it were, it consults the conscience. Is this right? Is this wrong? All right? Now, if you consult your conscience, and, and it says, you know, based on God's word, not guilt or fear or somebody else's thing, but based on God's word, you've been convinced it's wrong. If you go ahead and do it, you put a little sear on the conscience. In other words, it's saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm not, they're not, it's not working right, right? If you do that enough, then the thing will break down. And that's what he's talking about, seared conscience. It's supposed to translate what you claim to believe into appropriate behavior. They can't do that anymore. Their conscience says we're fried. You know, they say you're fried, no, it's gone, it's burnt out, scarred, insensitive, didn't work anymore. People have been grinding the gears of the conscience so often that eventually it's got the, the, the transmission froze. It doesn't work anymore. Okay. Verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Moving right along. Now, we've got the general description. Okay. You've got lies from demons. They have agents. They're hypocrites. They have no conscience. But give me some specifics. We get specifics in verse 3. Men who do this, they forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. For what purpose? To be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. We're going to see what that's all about. So, 
false teachers, how do we recognize them? By their fruits, their teachings. We'll know them. Now here in verse 3, it starts off with rotten fruit. Two kinds, actually. What does that mean? Men who forbid marriage. Who created marriage? Was it a construct like we're believing today? It's a social construct, just like gender and sexual orientation. Well, I don't think so. I mean, let's go back to the Bible again, right? God created man and said it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll create the woman and marriage, there you have it. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall be as one. God created marriage. These people are forbidding it. Now that's perverse, right? Same thing with advocating abstaining from foods. Although that was something that was a a better way to, to, to lie to people because there's something about that that's particularly attractive. I mean, I don't know you, but most people, if you told them I'm forbidding marriage, unless they're really snobs and super elitists and want to like, show how great they are, they're not going to be all that happy about it, right? Because we have, a, we have a, you know, a desire to be with somebody. We used to be, I could say, clearly of the opposite sex, but today not everybody thinks that way. But yeah, the opposite sex, and it's something that's pleasurable and all of that. So, but they said, now let's put another one in there that's a little murkier, which is abstaining from certain foods. Now, what do those two prohibitions have in common? Sex is bad, and if you eat certain foods, you're eating impure stuff. Real simple, I've already mentioned it today. Legalism. What is that? It's putting believers in bondage again to what? Man made rules and regulations. Clearly, forbidding marriage is a man made rule. Maybe it's not in the Bible, all right? Forbidding it. Now, saying that some people have the gift of celibacy, that's a whole other matter. But forbidding marriage generally, okay, that's a man-made rule and regulation. So is what's going on with food, you know. Well, you can't eat meat. Or, well, you know, we can't eat meat on certain days of the week. Or so forth like that. Or, you know, no shellfish. Or, you know, hear these things. Pork is, forget it, Right? Not, not, not realizing the fact that who created pigs? Did Satan? No, God did. And we'll get to that in a minute. I'm putting believers in bondage to man-made, man-made rules and regulations. In particular, we have here something called asceticism. I won't get into this in any detail except to have you go to Colossians chapter 2 where it's described. It's a lie. You know, people, again, they admire ascetics. You know, um, you can say what you want about Gandhi, but one of the things that people were so impressed with was the fact that he just went around in rags and he would like, just spin his own, you know, yarn and all of that. Man, what a holy man. I'm going to go to a monastery and I'm going to see a guy who's taken a vow of silence and poverty. Oh, man, that's a holy person. That's asceticism. It's a lie. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. If you've died with Christ and to the elementary principles of the world, and all believers have, why as if you were living in the world? See, people living in the world are impressed with legalism. But why are you doing it? Why are you submitting as believers in Christ yourself to decrees such as do not handle? Oh, you can't touch that. Do not taste. Don't let those things go between your lips. Do not touch. Right? No, no, no sexual relationships with anybody, which refer, all refer to things destined to perish with use. And here's the key. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of man. Not of God, of men. Well, you know, in this monastery, we go all the way back to Benedict in the 5th century. And he came up with this amazing way of living. Right? Or, or whoever. You know, there's lots of different figures out there. You know, the, uh, everybody now, this guy from, uh, what's his name? The, the Dalai Lama. He has all his rules, you know, Buddhism and all that. No, those are the teachings of men. Now, here's the attractiveness. These are matters which, to be sure, have the appearance. Remember, deceiving appearance of wisdom. You know, what is it really, though? Self-made religion. Self-abasement. Severe treatment of the body sounds good. However, they're not even of any value against fleshly indulgence. They're not, they don't even do the simple thing you think they do, which is, well, at least that person's self-discipline. He's given up this. He's not doing that. That's wrong. They're, they're, it has no value against indulgence. They'll just indulge in other things. 
You know, like the, like the, like the, like the Muslims, so they have this period, I think it's Ramadan, where they don't eat during the day, you know. Well, what, go to their houses at night and see what they're doing. They're making up for it. You know, they, they get, look at them, they're gaining weight during Ramadan. How is that possible, you know? No, it's no value. It gets, the indulgence is something that's in the heart. It's not something that goes into the body. So these guys, we already knew, they're spewing nonsense about the law, and here we have it. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Forbid marriage. Let me ask you a question. What kind of men would forbid marriage? Think about that for a minute. What kind of men would Would you want to hang out and have a beer with somebody who forbids marriage? Can you see how dour they have to be in walking around with their heads up? I can't believe they think marriage is good. Men who believe that sex, even between husband and wife, is dirty. You know? That holy people don't have sex. Do not touch. What kind of a man orders people to abstain from certain foods? You can't eat meat. You can't eat that. Do not handle. Do not taste. By the way, how do you enforce that? Do not taste. You know how you do it? It's real simple. You teach people that this is God saying it. You say, God has said that these foods are unclean in, in, in his eyes. God has said that you, should, you can only eat fish on Fridays. You know, that kind of thing. Well, God didn't say that, right? But that's how you get people, that's how you put people in bondage, is you tell them that God did. That's legalism. God did it, actually, no, God didn't. How do you know? The word of God. Oh, by the way, how do you get people to follow these false religions and think it's Christianity? Tell them they can't read this, right? And now you really got them. Put another book out there. Well, the Bible's okay, but we also have to have this, whether this is the Book of Mormon, whether this is the writings of Joseph Smith, whether this is, you know, a second book called the Catechism, whatever. Put something in there that distracts people from the real truth. Then they'll go for your religion and love it. That's the strategy. All right. Pure people, the advanced spiritual giants. Guess what? They've given up tasty foods. Wow. You know? God is pleased with me when I don't order steak. Come on. Well, what do you do? How do you take a phony religious legalist abusing scriptures to enforce their taboos? How do you deal with that? It's really simple, by the way. It's a simple thing. What do I tell you all the time? By telling them what scripture has to say. That's what I used to do when I, when I came out of religion and and became a believer in Christ, and went to went to back to family members and so forth. And at first, I just tried to argue as if I knew. And then I finally stopped it. And I said, "Listen, guys, it's not me. It's God and His Word. Check this out. Check that out. That's how you do it." Well, here, Paul is going to go back to the Book of Genesis to make his case. We'll see that in a minute. But let's look at verses three through five of First Timothy as we as we wrap up this morning. Verses three through five. First Timothy four. Verses 3 through 5. Men, false teachers, agents of demons who forbid marriage, advocate from abstaining from foods, notice, which God has created. God created cows and steer. God created shellfish and so forth. God created pigs. Sounds kind of funny, but he did. To be what? Why? To be gratefully shared in. Shared in. That's why... Getting together to eat a family meal is such an intimate thing, or it can be, you know? That's why, honestly, when people say that you can't do that this year for Thanksgiving, well, they're a killjoy. Now, I know there's reasons for it, but if it's, if it's out of proportion to anything reasonable, you can look and say, you know what? They're kind of like a legalist here. And what are they doing? They're trying to prevent people from doing things that create bonds and express intimacy and so forth. They have been created, all these foods, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Notice the key. Believing and knowing the truth makes you realize that all of these things have been given to you as a gift from God, and you should share them. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God, it says it in his word, and prayer, which is your response. Ingratitude. God created foods because God is gracious. They're gifts. He gave us foods as a gift 
to meet our needs, not only for nourishment, but also enjoyment. The land of the promised land was a land flowing with milk, nutrition, but what else? Honey, which is pure pleasure and enjoyment. You eat too much of it, you gain a little weight, but nobody does. It's just so sweet and you like it. Put it in your tea and so forth. Not just for nourishment, but also for enjoyment. Right? He created marriage not just because it's a good way to raise children, but because it's an enjoyable thing that God wanted to have husband and wife share in. So how do you know a legalist in this context? Very simple. You can always tell a legalist because he's a killjoy. If if it gives people pleasure, it's no good. Now God said, wait a minute. I created those things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. See, these people are telling believers what they can and cannot eat. Paul is telling us, ignore those legalists. Ignore the killjoys. Just look at things God's way. And here's God's way. Again, God created, look, isn't it true, all kinds of delicious and nutritious foods. Why? For us to enjoy and to share. Don't forget the sharing part. That's, that is an important part of why he gave, us, he gave us foods. Not just for ourselves and our own bodies, but to share in with others. He gave gifts to enhance fellowship among people. No man is an island. Legalists become an island. They become so self-righteous and self-satisfied that they just really don't want to be around people anymore because, you know, they're not living right. I got it all down. I'm living according to all the rules. They're not. I don't think I really want to socialize with them. But it's not good for the man to be alone. Sharing meals is what God wants. Sharing our bread with the needy is what God wants. Now, here's the deal. Believers who know these things, know that these are gifts from God, know that they're good and they're to be shared and enjoyed, those are the people who become grateful for them, right? If you see something as a prohibition, as a taboo, and a rule, you sit down to dinner and you look at the menu, well, I can't have that because God thinks that's unclean. How much fun is that? How much gratitude are you going to have for God putting this delicious steak out there and then saying, you can't have it? That's not, that's not, you won't be grateful for that kind of thing. That's what the legalists want. They want to change how you see God into somebody who's not a loving father who provides, but something else. Something as, as, as legalistic as they are. All right. Now why? Why does he give these gifts? Why did he have all of these great nutritious foods? Because he wants fellowship. And believers who know the truth that God has created all things and everything he's created is good, are grateful, are thankful. You know, the Lord in Genesis 5, 9, 3 said to Noah and his sons, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. He didn't say some, he said what? Every moving thing, two feet, four feet, flying in the air, swimming in the water, All of it, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. Jesus said the same thing in the Gospel of Mark. He declared all foods to be clean. He said it's not what goes into the man that corrupts him. It's what comes out of his heart. That's the issue. All right. Back to 1 Timothy now. Well, you're there already. God created everything, and everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified, set apart, made holy by means of the word of God, what God has said about it, and prayer, our response and gratitude with knowledge, with understanding of who God is. All right. Genesis 1.31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was all what? Very good. That's verse 4. The A part, right? Look at 1 Timothy 4 and and compare it to that. Everything created by God is good. All the way back in Genesis. So all of those legalists, remember these were fellows that were twisting the scriptures, taking, misunderstanding the law, which was created as we saw for evil men, to get them to know that what they're doing is wrong, and then twisting it all and trying to put people in bondage who were believers. Right? Well, what about Genesis 1.31? God saw that, he, that he, all that he had made, including the woman, including all the foods, and behold, it was very good. 
Nothing, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Word of God, no restrictions on the foods we can eat. But notice the, notice the second part of that. If it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. You understand that it's, that it's a gift. How? By means of the word of God. You have to know the word of God in order to understand that all foods are good. Okay? What does that mean? Well, while God doesn't restrict any of the foods, guess what happens? We restrict ourselves. When we remain ignorant of what he has said in his word, and we're suckers for the legalists, we're just doing it to ourselves. We've got nothing to do with God anymore. We don't, if we don't recognize that all foods are gifts and we're not thankful, then we're putting ourselves under these human rules and regulations. One more scripture and then we'll wrap up. Romans 14, 14. Romans 14, 14. I want you to see that Paul makes it all about what we know about God's word. What we think determines whether something is clean or unclean, not God. Romans 14, 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. All things created by God are good. Nothing is unclean in itself. Well, what happens? If anyone thinks something to be unclean, to him who thinks that anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. This is God's word. He's saying, if you think so, then you just made it so for you. On the other hand, if you base it on the word of God and gratitude, then it's been sanctified. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Why? Because God loves his word. He, he wants people to know the truth and respond to it. And that matters in terms of whether it's sanctified or not for you, for your family, for the people that you gather together. Okay, so what's the practical takeaway? You know, I think many of you probably can understand this already. You probably practice it. Grace before meals, we call it. The prayer before the meal. But the prayer shouldn't be a rote thing or it shouldn't be asking for blessing for yourself or any of that. God does bless you. What should it be? It should reflect God's word. I know that all things have been created for our good, that nothing is unclean, Father, if it's received with gratitude, that these are all gifts, and we want to thank you once again. That's simple. So that's how how it is that we put into practice what we learned today. Simply, when you're going to eat, just reflect and pray according to what God's word has to say about it, the truth, what you know and have convinced to be true, and then thank him. Is that easy enough? You bet it is. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for feeding us with your word, which is living and active and pure. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the Holy Spirit in our hearts to understand these things. And we know that we can call upon them when we need to, when you ask us to, when we're challenged by legalists and other people that want to put us in bondage to lies. You've given us the word and you've given us the spirit in our hearts. And Father, today we would ask that as we leave, that we would arm ourselves with the truth, not only for our benefit, but the benefit of anybody else in our lives who is still under bondage to man-made rules and regulations. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. A couple of things. We have a Bible study on Thursdays. It's on Skype, and it's at 6.30. All right. You can get... Every week, there's a post on the first page of our website, L-B-I-B-L-E dot O-R-G. And it'll give you everything you need to know to be able to get on Skype and join us. Starting a new series this Thursday on the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. It's going to be marvelous. I encourage everybody to, who can make it to make it. Some people want to know our giving policy. Well, you can imagine now when it talks about legalism that we do not force people to tithe. We don't even force people to give by putting a basket around and everybody has to put something in it. That's not what God wants. God wants to give us to give with gratitude. Same thing about food. Understanding that all the things that we have financially come from Him. And as a matter of gratitude, as a matter of gratitude, desiring 
to help those out, desiring to help others who maybe haven't had a chance to hear the truth, to hear it out of your love for the Lord and your love for people. That's the right motivation for giving. So keep that in mind. All right, one more time today. I want to make sure we all understand the most important thing we can give others, which is the truth of the gospel. Very simply, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's 100% God and 100% human. He's undiminished deity and he's perfect humanity in one person forever. And when he was born, he was born and he, had, he was a human now as well as God so that he could go at the cross, the perfect sacrifice for us. He died for us. He died for the sins of the world. And he was buried. And then on the third day, God raised him from the dead. So that, again, whoever simply now believes that truth, hear the message and believe it, you're saved. You have eternal life. You've been sealed at that moment with the Holy Spirit of promise for the day when Christ comes back and and then redeems your body as well. So you have a perfect resurrection body. How does it work? You're one moment away. You hear the truth about Jesus Christ and his death for our sins, his burial and his resurrection, and you believe it. You believe good news. How gracious is God? That he would make salvation on that basis rather than anything else. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for all your good gifts, for the songs that we sang today, for your word that has built us up and challenged us, for the generosity that you have for us, that you want us to have in turn for others. And Father, we thank you also, definitely most of all, for your son, Jesus Christ, and the message we have to give the world the gospel. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. And I'll give you the gift of dismissing you so you can get on with your day. Remember, there's things that God has put in your day today to be enjoyed and shared. So I encourage you, God encourages you to do that. Okay.